0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment podcast. Podcast.
1: Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia focused, meaning that we're going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law. But occasionally we will get
0: into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening. And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right. Now to the studio. All right, folks, welcome
1: back to the Good Judgment podcast. And today's exciting new episode, I'm Wade Patchett. I'm Tane Kell. And as you may know, a lot of you had asked us to do episodes involving evidence rules. You remember, Tane, we got a lot of emails from some of our judge colleagues when we first started the project saying, evidence, evidence, yeah. anything evidence. Why aren't we doing evidence? So we decided that we would do something with evidence.
0: But we had to find someone who knew something about evidence first, Wade. Absolutely.
1: And so we have our friend and what was it? F.O. Friend of the podcast. F.O.P.C. Garen Mueller is back with us. And Garen, thanks for being here. How are you?
2: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: So last time we cut Garen off from giving any real description of what he does for a living. At least tell everybody where you work.
2: I work at the Burnside Law Firm in Augusta, Georgia. We're a a plaintiff's firm. Okay. That's enough. Don't say that. Yeah, that's all. I'm actually surprised Tane didn't cut me off again. (laughs)
1: All right. So, Garen, tell the people what we're going to talk about today.
2: The exciting topic of pre arrest silence, the old Mallory rule. Yeah.
0: Under Mallory, uh, a bright line test was created um, that a prosecutor's comment in a case uh, on any pre-arrest silence or any comment on pre-arrest silence was improper as it was more prejudicial than probative.
1: Now, you know, the evidence code was changed and it's not the new evidence code, right, Tane?
0: Yeah, the evidence code now is in grammar school and is eating solid (laughs) food and is functioning quite well. And uh, so I don't think we really ought to refer to it as the new evidence code anymore.
1: So it took effect in January of 2013, and it precludes courts from making exclusionary rules that are rules of evidence like the one created in Mallory and instead requires trial courts to determine the admissibility of evidence based upon the facts of the specific case and the evidence code rules. There were, unfortunately, one of the reasons we needed to effectuate some new evidence rules back in 2011, effective 13, was because we had had a hodgepodge of ways that the that, that evidence had developed in Georgia. We had some case law, we had some statutes, we had some interpretations of case law. So long story short, they wanted to throw all that out and, and sort of start anew with the A version Of the federal rules of evidence, but then adapted to Georgia needs.
0: Yeah, and even though it required me to unlearn things I had been learning for about 25 or 30 years, I will have to admit that I believe a lot of what was incorporated into the evidence code um, has been really helpful in simplifying some things.
1: And you know, this OR case, ORR versus the state, it is not really a rule of evidence so much as it is a commentary on I guess, procedure, and how the rules interact with with the facts of the case.
2: Absolutely. Right. Well, let me give you the site for it quickly. It's a Supreme Court case here from 2019. It's 305 Georgia 729. It was written by Justice Nomius. So,
1: Garen, let's talk about the facts of Orr. Tell the folks the facts of the case, at least as it's, as it's relevant to the case.
2: All right. So, Orr is a defendant. He was accused of brutally beating his wife. At trial, he testified that his wife had actually been the aggressor, had attacked him, hit him with an ashtray in the head, so he responded by punching her a single time with a closed fist. To rebut that defense, uh, the prosecutor repeatedly asked other witnesses about Orr's failure to call the police and basically his pre-arrest silence. Also in closing, the prosecutor commented that Orr had never told the police or anyone else that version of the events. Defense counsel actually objected moved for mistrial, but the uh, the trial court denied that motion without explanation. So Orr was convicted. He appealed. The appellate court found that the Mallory rule was still the law until abrogated by the Supreme Court.
0: Yeah. The Mallory's categorical exclusionary rule, it's really best categorized as a judicial lawmaking rule. I mean, it it was essentially making a bright line test, the law of the state of Georgia. It excluded a certain type of evidence based on the court's view of policy. Um, and it operated only prospectively to cases that came after that Mallory decision. Um, but uh, just understand something, even though that is a, a very recent case, that case was abrogated by the implementation of the 2013 evidence code.
1: The court in, in Orr determined the admissibility of Mr. Orr's pre-arrest silence through the lens of the 2013 evidence code and not relying solely on that Mallory de- decision. Now, as an aside, this ruling is a great way to analyze the admissibility of any evidence. It, it, it goes through the step-by-step process that we would should all really consider when determining the admissibility of, of evidence of a statement or really any kind of evidence so when OR came out, Garen, you actually gave me a call and, and sent it to me and said,
2: "This I wish all the decisions were made this way, because they, they go through a process. Well, right. For evidence nerds like me, uh, this is you know the, a Bible to follow. It tells you exactly which steps to take. Starts with the 400s, 401 in particular, 402, relevance. And then you go to, they go to the specific... Uh, exclusions or specific evidence rules that may apply to the facts of the case and I just absolutely love it I think it's great for any attorney judge you know law student who wants to say you know how should I analyze a piece of evidence for admissibility use this uh, rule use this test well you know
1: we, we talk about hearsay and we and we've actually had some some evidence essentials on hearsay the the court in or first considered whether this was an adoptive admission 801 d 2b. Now, adoptive admission that sounds very serious. What is an adoptive admission? Basically, the idea is if a normal person hearing something would respond, their lack of response must be intentional. It must be. It must mean something as well. Right. And so, if the statement is such that under the circumstances, an innocent person, defendant or otherwise, would normally be induced to respond and there are sufficient foundational evidence out there to show that the person heard the statement that they understood the language i mean it wasn't something that it was it was said in 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 Japanese it was said that in a way that this person understood it and could hear it and they didn't respond that must
0: mean something right Yeah, like if somebody said, as I'm stopped at a traffic light, hey, you just ran over a pedestrian, I'm probably going to say, uh-uh, because, you know, that's something that, if I didn't do it, I mean,
2: you know, uh, that I'm normally going to say I didn't do. Right. Well, and then, so the court obviously found that there was not an adoptive admission, or they next turned to 801D2A, which is nonverbal conduct, which can be adopted by the, the party or the party's own statement. So the court found that basically vaguely pointing out that that if somebody failed to come forward or failed to say something is not an adoptive admission or that nonverbal conduct intended to be an assertion.
0: And then Tain's favorite rule is? Rule 403. Um, You know, the court in this case reminds us that Rule 403 is always the last consideration for a trial court when you're doing an examination of evidence like this. You always need to look at whether the uh, uh, probative value of that particular evidence is substantially outweighed by its prejudicial value or effect.
1: So folks, we started off this series with trying to target some things that were ingrained in us as judges and lawyers and trying to show how maybe they're they should not remain ingrained the mallory rule whether you could articulate it whether you knew it as the mallory rule or not you knew you couldn't comment on the defendant's decision to remain silent after arrest well there've been some there's been some fallout since then garen and and so for example we had a a recent uh, podcast where we talked about autopsy photos. I don't remember if you know if you remember Tane, we talked about some selected trial issues when yes. we when we did our series on how to try a case. Yes, one of those things was we talked about pre incision and post incision photographs, and should you allow them, you know there was an old rule that says the that it, it was a lot of people call it the brown rule right. that said that a photograph which depicts the victim after autopsy. Uh, should only be admissible where it's necessary to show something that's material to the case. Right. In, Vin, I guess, Venturino, I guess is the way you would say it. V-E-N-T-U-R-I-N-O. Is, that's not
0: an awesome Clint Eastwood movie. That's <laughs> Gran Torino. Don't don't get those confused. A lot of people confuse those. Or
1: Jesse Finchura. No, 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 uh, no.
2: That's, that's Ace actually.
1: <laughs> so anyway, the Supreme Court held that the Brown case had evap- had evaluated the miss the admissibility of autopsy photos based solely upon the general principles of relevance and prejudice, and the Venturino case indicated that we should actually now control that that whole issue is now controlled by the evidence code. So get rid of the automatic exclusion under Brown look at the relevance rules. You may end up in the same place, but look at the evidence rules instead of just knee-jerk reliance upon the old case.
2: All right, and there's some other cases uh, addressing pre-arrest silence since or There's really a litany of them. A lot of them really address whether or not Mallory, an objection was required under Mallory, and the court generally says, well, Mallory's not the law anymore, so we should really look at it through the, this lens that we've already spoke of.
0: And so they, all of those can be found where, Tate? At our website at goodjudgepod.com. So... Well, I guess the question now is where does this leave the trial court regarding pre arrest silence? Well, the trial court should treat pre arrest silence like any other statement of evidence and, and should go through the normal evidentiary progression in determining its uh, evidentiary uh, admissibility. Uh, you know, you start with Rule 401 uh, and then specific hearsay rules that might apply. And then, of course, you always go to my favorite rule, which is Rule 403, which, as we know, Wade, should always be used sparingly. Um, you should consider. Consider the evidence through the lens of an admission by the defendant, whether the silence is an adoptive omission or a nonverbal statement. And finally, if the court finds that the pre-arrest silence falls squarely within a hearsay exception, i.e. an adoptive admission or a nonverbal statement, then the court must conduct a 403 balancing test.
1: garen thanks for being here and, and helping us with this series, uh, this series on evidence
0: essentials. Tell everybody your name. I'm Garen Mueller. Thanks for having me. I'm Wade Padgett. And as always, I'm Tane Kell. And thanks for listening.
1: Thank you, folks, for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This podcast was originally
0: the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Special thanks to the University of Georgia College of Law and specifically Jim Henneberger uh, for their technical assistance and providing the studio for us. Thanks,
1: as always, to Stephen Turner and Turner Up Media, who does his best to get as much of our stupidity as he can.
0: But he can't get it all. We are eternally grateful to CSCJ,
1: the Council Superior Court Judges, for allowing us to handle in and their support in this project. Folks, these are our own opinions. They represent the opinions of Wade Paget and Tane Kell, and do not reflect the opinions of the Council Superior Court judges, UGA College of Law, ICJE, or
0: really anybody else for that matter. You can contact us at our
1: website at goodjudgepod.com, or you can contact us on email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Folks, please rate and review our podcast on whatever listening app you may be using. It'll go a long way to help others find the podcast. So, Tane, I guess we better bang the gavel on this one. Anything else you feel like we need to say?
0: No, that's all, Wade. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.